Welcome to the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope our broadcast will bless you. So the scripture reading of today is found in Ephesians six twelve, and it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Happy Sabbath. And um, it's good to be here again. Today, before I start, I want to uh, first say a good morning and welcome to all of you that are here today, uh, our visitors, and uh, also if you are watching us through the internet, you are welcome as well. We want you here, but if uh, you can't come, that's the best you can do, watch us. So we thank you for that and we welcome you. But I also want to uh, do uh, a little advertisement before we start. Like uh, Gary mentioned during Church Life that we are starting here a group uh, of study Tuesday nights. Uh, we want to focus this group in in like uh, studying the Bible together, we're gonna do this uh, through the reading of a book that it's a short book with short chapters. We're gonna read it uh, together here. We'll take probably a few minutes, but the book of the meeting will be dedicated to two things: the biblical discussion that that chapter will spawn off, and also to prayer. We want you here. You want you to uh, make a part of that blessing, but uh, make plans to be here every Tuesday at 6 p.m. We will be here for you. Don't worry about the book. We had plenty of books of, for everybody, so you can uh, pick up them Tuesdays, or you can, if you want to start to read ahead of time, you can pick up them at the uh, end of the service today. Just look for Tony, and he can guide you to the, to the right book to pick up. And, uh, but the important thing is to be here because as we study the Bible, we're going to have opportunities to talk with one another and learn from one another and grow together as we pray for the Holy Spirit. Like uh, now, uh, starting the sermon of today, I want to mention that uh, I just remind myself when I was uh, uh, preaching my first sermon as a pastor. That's around 20 years ago. And uh, was kind of uh, dreadful because I had preached before, but now I was the pastor and I, I felt the responsibility of like uh, leading a congregation. So that was a very emotional day for me. But today I'm feeling kind of the same because uh, uh, over the past couple of weeks, I've been uh, cutting uh, and working on the message of today uh, to be something that's meaningful. But every day, like the Lord was like trying to uh, put some of his ideas, how dare him, on my sermon and uh, getting some of mine. So in a way, although that's an old team, it's a new sermon altogether for me as well. So, and it was done at four hands. 
We are, since last year, we are going over a series that uh, it's called uh, God in Search of Mankind. That series was designed to have three arcs, three main seasons, if you may. The first season was last year. We had, I think, five sermons where the focus was to see, to focus on God, who he is, his love, and, uh, and uh, how his love uh, has to do with our day-to-day struggles, and uh, how his love is a principle that helps us to understand the Bible itself and the reality around us. Uh, we learned that God is love, that he lives in an eternal community of uh, love, and that we were formed at his image, and we are meant to be like he is, and to live in harmony with each other and with him. And uh, the second arc, or the second season of that uh, series, we started early this year, and we are focusing on an, another theme that goes from Genesis to Revelation. That's the theme of the cosmic conflict or the great controversy between Christ and Satan. And uh, like uh, we covered the basics on the previous sermons, uh, we are today trying to put some of the things together, how uh, those things fit together. So we're going to review a lot of the texts we saw before, but in a different light, how they... Uh, fit together, and what they mean for our lives as Christians living on the 21st century, living on the last days. And uh, uh, today, we will continue that journey with a sermon that uh, entitled, uh, The King Has Another Move. And uh, we will answer one question that was hanging or we will start to answer because I'm going to just be able to finish really on the next sermon. That's the last sermon of that second half of the series. Tata. And the question is how we can live and thrive on those last days uh, by understanding uh, how to honor God and how to vindicate his character with our life. In other words, that's one of the big questions that we ask when we started the series. Like, how, uh, what God expects from me? What, what, how am I supposed to be living? So the, packet, the message today will be packed of like different concepts of scripture. And as we dive on their meaning, I ask you to be prayerful. Because as the text we read minutes ago on the biblical reading, indicate we are in a war. And that war is not like a, a physical war. It's not a sword and guns and type of war. It's an ideological war. It's a war in where God's character is being uh, defamated. But it's a war that each one of us is called to be part of. We are either in God's side or on the enemy's side. There is no neutral ground. And uh, as Paul said on the text we just read, that war is not against flesh and blood. We are really going in a battle with uh, Satan himself. Not only for God's, but for ourselves. Because Satan wants to destroy us. Satan wants to 
bring us astray and separate us from God. And if he does that, he had succeeded. But uh, before we dive into the sermon, I want to invite you to another prayer because we do need the Holy Spirit to be your guide and to be your teacher today. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of life. Thank you so much for uh, enable us to be here today and to study together scripture and learn how that war between Christ and Satan affect us. Bless us because we need your help to understand the text and the concepts we're going to be exploring today. We ask for the Holy Spirit that in the same way he inspired the prophets to write scripture, may he illuminate us today as we read the scripture. May we hear your voice. Dear Father, help me as the preacher today. Remove from my lips any word that you don't want to be said. To, to be said to, so help me not to say it. And put on my lips the words you want me to say, even though I may not know this ahead of time. Guide me. And, but also, guide me with your Holy Spirit, but also guide each one of those that will be hearing today, here or through the internet. Help them to not hear my voice, but hear your spirit talking intimately in their hearts. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Already, uh, on the late 1700s and uh, on the early 1800s, there was a uh, time when a German culture was like the leading culture of that generation. Like today, we can say, for example, that American culture is probably the leading culture on that generation. In every place we go, like if you go in the middle of a jungle in Africa or in uh, South America or in Asia or on the middle of the Australian outback, what do you see? You see American movies, American novels, American culture all over. But back 200 years ago, uh, like on late 1700s and, and, uh, and uh, during the 1800s, that was not so. The leading culture of the time was the German culture. Like uh, their works through uh, philosophy, theology, uh, uh, arts, literature in general, conquer not only Europe, but all the world, including the Americas. And uh, one of the greatest products of uh, that German culture was a writer uh, called uh, uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Uh, and uh, he was very famous. And one of his most popular works, uh, you probably heard it, or at least heard references of it, it's uh, like his, my, uh, his best work, as the critic says, and also one of the greatest works of uh, German literature, was a play he wrote that's called Faust. And uh, 
this work, Faust, was so famous, so impacted uh, uh, the, the generation uh, of the 1800s that some, some people that uh, study pop culture today, they kind of uh, equate this to Star Wars. Like uh, the impact that Star Wars had in our generation. Like everybody knows everybody. Like even who never watched it, at least heard about it. And that is the thing among the young people, young adults and teenagers. And that was the case with Faust. And uh, interesting enough that that play, he narrates the, a story between Mephistopheles, the devil, and his bat with God. And he was betting that Faust, that was a wealthy, very wealthy man and a wise man that was seeking to learn, uh, the more he could learn. Uh, he bet, uh, Mephistopheles bet with God that he could lure this righteous man away from his righteous path. And uh, that does it, that does that sound familiar to you? Look like just the story we studied last week, uh, last sermon, the story of Job. Like, uh, and uh, the story is a, the, the story on false is a washed down narrative. Uh, a character, character, if you may, of the great controversy. That idea that we are immersed in a life and death, out out battle, fascinated minds of the people on the 1800s. And even nowadays, that idea is not how strange, because as I mentioned, just to mention one Star Wars, but that whole idea about that battle between uh, good and evil, is permeates the media, the popular medias of today. And according to the Bible, the true story behind that narrative uh, started ages ago. It started even before the creation of this world. It started in heaven. When a fallen angel started to accuse God and smear his character. And uh, why that story fascinated us so much? Like why people... Young and old, they got so attracted to those types of narratives. Because on our heart of hearts, we know that those narratives, they have a lot of truth on it. Because they speak about that great controversy. And like, uh, the, when that, that, that book, False, was originally published in 1808, but like 20 years later, 21 years later, a second edition was published. And uh, some uh, artists were uh, hired to do the illustrations of like they have in every other page. Like to an illustration for each scene of the play. And uh, the, the, the artist that did most of that illustration was a guy called uh, Friedrich August Moritz Rech. This young painter as many other artists of his generation, was fascinated by Faust. He probably read it many, many times. And uh, uh, he was so excited to produce those uh, 
images for the book that he started to produce a series of paintings as well that had those Faustian themes. And that led him to paint his most famous picture that uh, it's called uh, Die Schnappler. That is a German for the chess players. And uh, although that painter is not explicitly comes out for any of the scenes on Faust, it's loaded with the the narratives of that uh, controversy. The paint kind of describes a a match between the devil, that's the guy in green, uh, against a guy that supposedly represents Faust. And uh, in this allegory, the devil is also battling for the main soul. And uh, in the position that is uh, the chessboard is also telling because they are not over a table, they are over a coffin. They are playing over a coffin. like, And that was his coffin if he loses it. So it was an all-in battle of life and death. And uh, the two principal antagonists of that drama, they face each other. And uh, we see uh, Satan with his, all his splendor sit, sitting on a throne with like a smirk on his face because he's winning. And uh, we see that other man that is on that battle like with his head down because he knows he, he does not have another move. Uh, and the angel, his angel is there like almost like pity, not able to do anything just to see how that battle is going. And uh, like the outcome of, the, of that match is supposed to be dreadful. And uh, even the, the chess pieces on itself, they are kind of uh, revealing. Like the king on the, uh, on the side of the enemy is like a miniature of himself. You can see that it has the same uh, cape and the same uh, heads and everything. And he's pushing forward everybody. The, the figure ahead of him, I don't know if you guys can see it, like uh, that figure right in front of him. He's, he's like uh, trying to crush a cross with his feet, like, trying to trample on the cross because that's uh, 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 the signifying Satan's aim to destroy God's church. And all the other pieces have like similar meanings, all going in an all-out battle against uh, the side of the lighter pieces that are the light of Faust, the side of Faust. They want to snare him. And uh, at this point, uh, he is in a checkmate position, according to the painter's mind. And fast forwarding another century, uh, that, that most famous uh, paint of rest was a, a in loner on the Louvre for about 10 years, I think on the 50s. And that uh, was also the object of one of the famous sermon illustrations of Billy Graham. And uh, on uh, 
he used to talk about an incident when that uh, piece was in, in an exhibit on the museum where a group of visitors were being led like, uh, and they showed out the different pictures. When they stop on that picture, uh, the, the tour guide explained who was the painter, how the backstory about Faust and whatnot, and how this picture, by its popular name, although the official name, the name that the painter gave was the chess players, most people called it, or used to call that, uh, that art piece, the called checkmate. Why? Because checkmate in chess is a, a move is a movement that your adversary does in the case here the devil that leaves you with no legal move to, to do in order to save the king. So checkmate means give up. Checkmate means game over. Checkmate means uh you have to face defeat. And that's why the angel is so sad uh, on that picture. Because he's just waiting for the final verdict of checkmate. Because when you give checkmate, what that means? Like, you have just two moves to do whatever you can do. But on the next move, the adversary will kill you. Or to honorably just drop your king and accept defeat. So the angel was kind of waiting. What's he going to do? And uh, according to the story. After that explanation was given. The group left. And uh, the one person stayed behind. Something was not settling well with all that explanation and all the picture. That person was a, a Russian grandmaster of chess. Uh, he knew the game very well. And uh, he was rattled with this whole picture. And he looked and he looked and he looked. And uh, as he looked, uh, he started to analyze all the pieces that were on the chessboard, all the pieces that were removed, everything that could be done. And uh, when the tour group was like two corridors away, so take, he took like a good time on that observation. He started to shout, it's a lie, it's a lie, it's a lie, call the painter, call the museum curator, because the king has another move. Like, uh, according to the arrangement of the pieces left on that, on that uh, chessboard, for you and me, and for the painter, the game was over, but that guy, he saw another movement that could save the king and do the checkmate on the opposite side in two moves. And uh, that grandmaster saw what we could not see. And uh, he saw that the king had another move. The devil was wrong. He was like smiling on that picture because he thought it was checkmate. But the, uh, the king had another move. Amen. 6,000 years ago, another paint, another painting was painted with broad strokes. 6,000 years ago, we see a couple, Adam and Eve, shiver, shivering in fear, cornered 
on a corner of the garden in a place that we call Eden. They had eaten the forbidden fruit. They had uh, uh, eat what they are not supposed to do. They disobeyed God. And because of that betrayal, they were in fear. Uh, it was such a dreadful day that uh, the light of joy that they had in their countenance dimmed away. The day was so dark that like the image of God that they once bare was corrupted by their disobedience. The darkness was so steep that the radiance of their character had vanished. And uh, the only thing that they had to protect themselves and to cover their bodies before they had like a, a cover of light, a cover of glory, was like some fig leaves that they collected and craftily uh, did something to cover their nakedness. It was a day that like hope seemed to have vanished. And uh, in the sight of that scene, demons were shouting and dancing. Because uh, while the whole universe was speechless, contemplating the fall, uh, Satan thought he had made checkmate. In his mind, if he had succeeded to make Adam and Eve to betray God and to defect, uh, God, he would reveal God as a tyrant because God would have to come down and kill them on the spot. So I imagine Satan like behind that tree, like just waiting to see what's going to happen. And uh, he had only two possibilities on his mind. Either God will come and vanquish them, and then I can jump from that tree and say, see, he is a tyrant. Or he's going to let to have them let go. And if he does so, I win as well, because then I can continue in my vicious ways, but I have to be pardoned as well. So he, he saw a checkmate, but our king had another move. Amen? Like, uh, he thought he won no matter what, but God had another move. Satan was spreading a narrative of uh, God being a tyrant, being a destroyer, being the source of our evil, being unjust. And uh, that day, he thought he won, but God knew better. Or God had another move. Like uh, when I was preparing to this sermon, I like I was doing my devotionals, and uh, through my devotionals, I read the Bible, I read some uh, a devotional book. Uh, sometimes I read uh, a book of a Christian author. I read many Christian authors. I've shared some of those readings throughout my sermons. Uh, but uh, one text caught my attention. 
And uh, because I almost cried when I read it. Because I was preparing for this sermon. And helped me to put in perspective. What God was, was uh, trying to do. But what was Satan was trying to do as well. And uh, that uh, text is on uh, Ministry of Healing. Page 113 it says. Sickness, suffering and death are the work of our antagonist power, antagonistic power. Satan is the destroyer. God is the restorer. Uh, as soon as we Adam and Eve sin, God put in motion a plan to save of his first parents and to bring them back to that garden. Jesus would someday come and die for humanity. He vowed to switch to let it go of his glory being exalted in heavens and come and live in this miserable world and die for you and me. In Jesus we see that plan coming to fruition and then but the entire biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation is nothing more what God is doing to save you and me. That's why on the last sermon I asked, like, what else he could have he, he done? He done everything he could. And uh, Jesus, he redeemed us. But I dare to ask, what should be our response to his redemption? What's our role in all this? We as Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, sometimes we forget that we are called to do a ministry of restoration. What Jesus vowed himself to do on Genesis 3.15, a text that we're going to see in a minute, to restore us, we should be his partners on that uh, ministry of restoration. And uh, God is calling you and me. And everybody else who calls himself a Christian. To be partners with him in this ministry. He's calling us out. That's why in Isaiah 58 verse 12. Uh, we read and I'm going to read through the New King James. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of, our of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. We are called to a ministry of restoration. But restoration of what? I just give you a, couple of exam a few examples. We are called to restore everything that was lost in Eden. Everything. But what was lost there? For instance, in the fall, uh, we see that God created a special day for men to fellowship with one another and with himself. The Sabbath. And uh, we are called to read to, to restore the Sabbath. The Sabbath has been largely a forgotten day. Uh, we read last time in Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9. 
that uh, the Lord is, gave out the earth to Satan and his angels because he won by tricking our first parents. But he set aside one people that he made out of no people that was Israel. And he set these people aside to be his share. A place where he could display his uh, ways of government and a place where his truth could be restored. And as part of those truths, he gave them the Sabbath as he had gave to, uh, as he had given to Adam and Eve before them. Through Israel, that prophetic calling of being a restorer was partially fulfilled. However, on Jesus' day, people were so far away from the mark. They had transformed the Sabbath instead of a day of uh, joy, a day of communion, a day of fellowship, a day of doing good. They transformed it in a burden. And, uh, and uh, that's why in Matthew 5, 17 to 19, Jesus says, like, do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not came to destroy it, but to fulfill it. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tilde will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And what that means to really fully understand, like uh, Jesus is saying that like he didn't, he came to restore the old things, not to, uh, to push aside all the Old Testament or the Decalogue, they are still valid. People are just doing wrong. And he came to restore all those things and to uplift it. And nothing of those things will pass. But what that really means for us, in order for us to fully understand, let's overlay this with what the Bible says in Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Galatians 3, 7 to 9. Therefore, know that only those who are of the faith are sons of Abraham. And that the scripture foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So, then those who are of the faith are blessed with, with uh, believing Abraham. What that means, what do you understand of this test that I text I just read. One at a time, people. Go ahead. God opened up the promises that uh, were meant to Abraham to not only for the Jews but to the Gentiles as well. But there's more. What else you see on that text? Is it goes even more deeper than that. Okay, uh, for the sake of the time, I will answer. But uh, I know you want to answer, but I will answer. Like uh, God gave us not only the promises, but we became Israel. If we believe in 
in God, if we believe in Jesus, if we accept Jesus as our Messiah, we are sons and daughters of Abraham. That's why Paul in Romans uh, chapter 10 and 11, he basically argues like that God one day had one uh, olive tree that was Israel. But once Jesus came, those branches that didn't believe, they would be pruned and cut off from that tree. But if branches from other trees, meaning non-Jews, believing on him, they would be crafted in and be as native born. So you and me in Christ are sons and daughters of Abraham. And what that means, we not only have the same blessings, but we are called to the same prophetic message. We are called to be restorers of everything that was lost in Eden, including the Sabbath. Mind you, the Sabbath was not really ever lost. We have, if you look through history, we have records of churches throughout history that always kept the Christian churches, always kept the Sabbath flame up. We even have uh, records on the Bible of like uh, in uh, Acts 8 about an uh, uh, Ethiopian that was uh, converted to Christianity. And he brought Christianity to, to, uh, to present-day Ethiopia and Eritrea. And like that church was going on, keeping the Sabbath since the year 34 AD, the year after Pentecost. And why? Because the early Christians kept the Sabbath, and that was transferred to the Ethiopians, and they keep it on it. And they're still keeping it today uninterrupted and there's more and more examples of that but largely throughout Christianity Sabbath is forgotten not the concept of the Sabbath because most churches they still say you have to have your Sabbath day but that Sabbath day is not the seventh day it's the Sunday or some even go as far as say like just take one day of rest one day of the week and you'll be fine but that's not the biblical Sabbath. However, in 1844, God raised a people that uh, once again would restore the Sabbath message. And why that's so important? Because the Sabbath reminds us that we have a creator. By keeping the Sabbath on the day the Lord appointed, you're saying that you didn't come from a large string of like a monocellular forms of life that evolved in like a, a animals and fish and uh, lizards and monkeys and then finally men you're saying that you are fruit of your creator that he did you with your his own hands on eden and uh the bible says Inequivocally in Genesis 2 17. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are created at God's image. And by restoring the Sabbath, we also restore the claim that God is our creator. We also restore the truth that we are created 
in his image. But we are called to restore not only the Sabbath. We are, because we bear God's image, we are called to restore many other things. But before we go to those other things, I want to ask you, what the image of God looks like? Well, the image of God embraces rationality. God gave us the gifts of cognition. God gave us the gifts of insight, the gifts of rationality. He gave us ethic principles that every human being is born with. And that's one of the things that uh, makes the, the advocates of evolution scratch their heads because they cannot find a utilitarian explanation why every human being is born with that uh, sense of right and wrong, with some building ethics, as uh, Romans chapter 2 indicates to us. The Bible is very clear. God put this on their hearts. God created us. He gave us His image. And that image uh, embraces rationality uh, and all that. But also embraces our free will as part of that rationality. So we have to be able to freely choose to be able to bear God's image in its fullness. But uh, what else this image of God embraces? It embraces rationality, but also embraces relationality. Uh, God gives us uh, His image and that means uh, we are born to be in relationship with other people. Why? Because God is in an eternal relationship with itself. On that community that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because He created us in His image, we also have the same urge to relate with one another and to relate with Him. To be in community, in harmony with them. And... Uh, uh, and where that comes from the Bible? If you remind yourself from the first half of this series, like uh, we saw that in creation, everything was good. The water was good, the air was good, the star was good, the animals were good. But when we reach Genesis 2, especially in Genesis 2 verse 18, something was not good. And God said in Genesis 2 18, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. We are made to be in community, to be in intimate relationship with one another, starting with our most intimate community. That's like husband and wife, and then family, then our faith community and the larger community. We are made to live in community. So, his image that we are supposed to restore comprises rationality, Relationality and also responsibility. Yes. Why responsibility? Because Adam and Eve, they were entrusted as stewards of the universe as they knew it. They were made uh, at the image of God to complete the good work of the earth and taking care of it. If you see in Genesis 1, what's the main tasks of God? He creates spaces, 
and then he fills spaces. He creates the sky, then he fills the sky with stars. He creates the water that separates from the sky, and he fills the water with fish. He creates the dry land, and then he fills the dry land with vegetation and with animals. Uh, so he creates the atmosphere, and then he fills the atmosphere with the birds, and so on and so forth. But as we uh, fast forward to Genesis 2, uh, 15, uh, we see that God does something different. In Genesis 2, 15, he says like, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. So God created a garden, a special place for them to rule the earth. But they were supposed to keep feeling. Because he also says on the previous chapter, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So God gave him this dual job of being stewards of the earth and be uh, co-creators with him, populating the earth. But uh, there is more. The image of God consists not only of uh, relationality, of uh, rationality, of responsibility. It also consists of aesthetic and uh, sensitivity. God has given to each one of us a love for the beautiful. It inspires us and motivates us. Tony may be the only architect here, but we all love beautiful things. It's not on our job description, but that's how the way God created us. Remember on the Genesis story, Adam and Eve were given the fruits of the tree because everything was fruits that were good for eating except the tree of uh, the knowledge of uh, uh, good and evil, the forbidden tree. And uh, God also said that everything was good and beautiful. And each one of us is called to restore that. Like uh, God gave that to us, that innate appreciation for, for the beautiful. And uh, on uh, verse 16, uh, after he said for us to tend the garden, he says like you can eat everything but that tree. Because the day you eat, you shall die. But then he kept it uh, out on their disposal so they could make it, the garden even more beautiful. But it's interesting. We have that drive for the beautiful. And what drove Eve to actually take the fruit? If you go with me to Genesis 3, uh, verse uh, 4. I mean, verse 6, what, watch what says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was pleasant to the eyes, was beautiful. And uh, as anything else that God created, and now as desirable to make one wise, then she took it. Why? Because we have that drive for the beautiful. Satan wants to pervert that drive for bad things, but God wants us to 
restore that to the good things he created. Each one of us, in order to restore God's image, we are called to make the world around us a better place to live. Not only by making it beautiful, but by making it better for the people around us. But there is something else that uh, was involved here, that was lost in Eden, and we have to restore. We have to restore health and wellness. That involves exercise. That involves diet. That involves sunlight. That involves air. That involves anything God created on the seven days of creation, on the six days of creation. And, uh, on, and everything that God gave us for us to be optimal health, to have optimal health, that we have to restore. I could give you now, I won't, I'm fighting the temptation, but uh, I could give you now a whole Bible study that will take probably another half an hour or one hour just on health principles on the Bible. I don't need Ellen White, I don't need anything else. And mind you, I just need the Old Testament, although they are on the New Testament as well. So from the beginning, God wanted us to be restorers of those health principles as well. Uh, why? Because he loves us and he wants us to live a healthier life, a plentier life. Today, the whole healthcare movement is uh, like slowly moving away from treating the symptoms to a more holistic medicine, to uh, more focusing more in prevention, focusing more in things you can do instead of to cure diseases, to not get diseases. And that's exactly how God intended. That's uh, mainstream now. But in 1863, when God in a vision uh, gave all those principles to Ellen G. White and pointing back to the Bible where those principles are, uh, we received a health message that was a biblical health message that we needed to restore. Holistic health should be the hallmark of every Christian. Because from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible insistently tells us that our, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Bible ins consistently sell tells to us that we have to choose between God's will or His way of doing things or our way. Between health or disease. Between death or life eternal. That's why on the book of Deuteronomy, God is quoted saying like, if you choose to obey me and follow my advice, you will have none of the infirmities that the Egyptians had. Like, because the health message is fundamental to the biblical truth. And there's a lot of sense to it. I cannot really fully relate with God. If my body is not okay, if my mind is not okay, if I'm out of sync, that's why we have God call us to restore health and wellness. But that's not only it. God also call us to restore covenantal marriage. After the fall, the Edenic marriage was lost. How do I say that? Because if you follow Genesis 3, Right after the fall, just a few verses after they ate the fruit, 
If you read, I think it's verses um, 12 to 13, they are already blaming each other and pointing fingers to each other. Oh, the woman you created. All pointing fingers to each other. And just a few verses more, the family is breaking apart because of sin. We have the first uh, 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 murder from brothers. And just a few verses down the road, we see polygamy showing up on the picture. Those didn't take even one chapter for God's plan for covenantal marriage to, to fall apart. Why people think they have to have a multiple partners or multiple wives or why they have a desire for somebody that's not their wife, it's, it's besides me. Always a distortion of God's intent. The identical marriage done in Eden in Genesis 2, 23 through 20, 25 was not only done between two creatures, not only done between man and woman, but is also a mutual covenant done between uh, man, woman, husband and wife, and God. We are called to restore that. To restore what is really biblically speaking, what marriage is all about. But we are also called to restore something else. We are called to restore Christian education. Brendan, that picture is for you. Did you know that heaven is a school? And uh, did you know that Eden was a branch uh, campus of that heavenly school? If you read your Bible carefully, you will find out that Adam and Eve were the pupils, were the students. God was the teacher. The garden was their classroom. And nature was their textbook. Edenic education should be the basis of Christian education. Our mission is to lead students, is to lead students towards having a saving relationship with Christ. If a Christian school or Adventist school is not doing that, we are failing miserably. Uh, Our work is to educate students for eternity. The mission of this church, the mission of our school, is to restore Christian education to its rightful place. What we offer here at the Tri-City School is a transformational encounter with God in the context of learning uh, knowledge and life skills that will transfer, that will prepare you to to live a life, not only in this world, but in the world to come. And that's what we try to do here. And thank you guys for your support to Christian education. But there is more. Like... uh, I want to go back now to the text of uh, Genesis 3.15. That, that's the first promise of restoration that God gave us. Because I want to finish and I don't want to go to, uh, too long. I could go on and on, but uh, the Lord is saying, Son, keep it straight. Don't, don't go there. So, let's go there. Uh, 
Genesis 3.15 was the first promise of restoration. Here, there's three things that I quickly is going to mention to you on this passage. Because they are very relevant for us today. And uh, in Genesis 3.15, he starts by saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman. You see, Satan thought he had cornered God. That God had no other move that was a checkmate. But the king had another move. And uh, let's talk about then, about those three things that are here on the stacks that are evident when God moves. The first thing that I want you to know is that when God moves, he moves mercifully. What that means. If you read the, the fall story. Like after they fall. On verses 8 and 9. Of chapter 3. Instead of going away from them. God is on the record. Going towards them. Seeking them out. Calling them by their name. They were in hiding. But God is seeking because he's acting out of his mercy. Of his mercy. Because when he acts, he acts mercifully. I'm so excited today that my mouth is not keeping up with my brain. So I'm, <laughs> I'm speaking too fast. And uh, uh, Satan thought that uh, when Adam and Eve fell, that was it. But the... Miracle for all miracles in this passage is that God, instead of like uh, destroy them, he acts out of mercy. Satan was well acquainted with God's justice, but he severely underestimated God's mercy. And uh, every time you see God moving on the scripture, you can see that he moves uh, mercifully. He is the one running towards the prodigal son. He is the one that is like uh, going out of his way to get the lost sheep back to the fold. He is the one that tears the house all apart to find that lost coin. And he is the one that came down on earth for you and me. He, God, God, when he moves, he moves mercifully. Satan taught the king was cornered, but our king Jesus had another move. And uh, when God moves, he not only moves mercifully, uh, because he, he knew that he would come someday as the Lamb of God to die in our place, the innocent in the place of the wicked. Uh, unfallen beings could never predict that. Satan totally missed it. But uh, we know now that when God moves, he moves mercifully. He was, God knew everything that's going to go happen. God is never surprised. He was just waiting for the right time to move and to move mercifully. But uh, I also have to say to you today that... Uh, Notice what the Bible says. That God put enmity between you, between the woman 
and the serpent, between their offspring, you and me, and Satan. And what's that enmity? That's a mysterious principle that uh, God implanted. Because when God moves, He not only moves mercifully, but He moves mysteriously. And He put that principle in, in me that He called enmity. And what that consists of is like that internal feeling that I have when I'm about to do something wrong, that that's not good. It's that inner drive that we all have, we feel attracted for what's more righteous. Even when we don't formally know that, it's something that God implants on us, that makes us abhor evil. Although we naturally uh, love evil, because of that principle that God implanted on our heart in mysterious ways, we don't like it. We feel bad about it. And uh, that principle that God implanted on us is not natural to us. Please pay attention now because uh, the statement that comes next is very deep theologically. Like uh, humanity out there, they preach that we have that in innate goodness on us. That's not biblical. Biblically, we have that tendency to do evil. But God put a principle of enmity on you. But in order for that principle to be fully activated, in order for you to really uh, act upon on that principle, uh, that principle cannot be empowered by us, by our own efforts alone. We need the Holy Spirit on our life to empower us to do what's good. Although our flesh wants to do what's bad, that principle puts us the desire to do good. But we need the Holy Spirit because if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to lead us completely, we won't be able to do what's right. We won't be able to uh, make it. The Holy Spirit needs to live on us in order to, to uh, empower our impulse and to enable us to live and overcome the, our evil desires. That is totally necessary. And uh, the Bible says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and the seed uh, on her seed. And he shall bruise uh, the, uh, the, her head and she shall bruise his heel. Like, uh, that's warfare language. They were in a war here. Adam and Eve, like the rest of us, are involved in that war. They are combatants. But uh, they can win that battle by themselves, as we just saw. Because someday, somebody, God-made man, will come down and uh, crush that serpent. And uh, if you look closely, Jesus here has the tactical advantage. He's on top. He is smacking the serpent on the head. Of course, they would get uh, uh, hurt in the process. He died. But uh, Satan, what Satan didn't count is that not only 
God acts and moves mercifully. Not only God acts and moves uh, mysteriously, but he also acts and moves miraculously. And uh, how? Like when uh, on that battle, the devil thought he had the upper hand. As he thought that he has the upper hand with you and me. Uh, like, uh, let's talk, for example, about Moses. Let's ask, let's ask Moses. Like, uh, if you remember the story, they were captives in Egypt. God, through Moses, got them out with powerful miracles. Like, uh, those guys that had uh, uh, miracles for breakfast. They had like uh, wonders for lunch. And they had God in person by, for dinner. So like they saw everything that was about to be seen. God acted very powerfully, very miraculously. Uh, as he plucked them out of Egypt. And, uh, but those guys, they were always complaining. Like was never good. God gave them heavenly bread. Bread is not good. God then gave them all oh, that water is not always a problem, always a problem. One day Moses was tired of it, and God said, "Like go and speak with the rock, and give and I will give water to these people." Moses was so upset that he wanted to take the glory for himself, and he struck the rock, the rock instead of speaking to it, and he failed his mission. Because it got the focus away from God and to himself. That's something we cannot do. And uh, God said, like, Moses, I love you, but I can't let you go. I can let you see the promised land. But you won't be able to go there. God brought him to the height of the Mount Nebo. He died there. He was buried by angels. And Satan thought, I want it. He is not entering. God failed in his promises. But like, uh, I don't know how much time passed. Uh, I'm sure Satan had his minions protecting that grave. But when they saw like the light, Jesus coming down in person to resurrect Moses. To, not to give Moses a glimpse of the promised land here, but to give Moses the glimpse of the, to bring him to the real promised land, that's the new Jerusalem. If you read uh, um, not Isaiah, Hebrews 11, you're going to see like that, uh, even Abraham, when he was, he was not looking for a promised land, for a city that was made by human hands, he was looking for that heavenly city. So, God Satan tried to fight it, but he could not resist it. Because when God moves, he moves miraculously. And he always had another move. God thought, Satan thought he had defeated Moses. He had defeated God's purpose to bring Moses to the kingdom. But God fulfilled it in another way. And uh, he also thought that on the cross, he had won. On uh, that day, 2,000 years ago, he was hanging 
uh, on the cross. Betrayed by his own people. Forsaken by God. To the point that he cried like, uh, uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Like, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At 2.45 on that fateful day. When uh, he was dwindling in pain and suffering, the devil was singing and shouting. And uh, when he said, it's finished, at 3 p.m. that day, was, everything was done. He died. But for a moment, especially for those watching there, looked like that the devil was one. Looked like that hope had died. Looked like that the fate had uh, faulted. Like uh, looked like love had died. Why? Jesus died at 3 p.m. on that day. Cause of death? A broken heart. And uh, as we read the biblical narrative, uh, some ladies... Weeping and like uh, cleaning him out and bringing him to the tomb, laying him to rest, thinking their life was now gone, their hopes were forever gone. But uh, God had another move. On that resurrection morning, when Jesus raised by his own power, victory was raised up. Our victory. When Jesus was up. Power. Was up. When Jesus was raised up. Immortality. For us that believe on him. Came up. When Jesus was resurrected. Resur uh, redemption was assured. And restoration. Stood up. Like. Uh, and why I'm saying this to, the, to you. We live. In a great controversy. We are in the middle. Of this war. Sometimes. Look like. We are cornered. Look like. Everything on our life is falling apart. Look like. We have no hope. But. I have to remind you. The king. Has another move. God. Always have another move. What that means for you. If you're having financial problems. If you're not meeting ends meet. God has another move. If uh, your family is falling apart. If your marriage is broken. God has another move. If you have troubles in life that you don't see an end. God has another move. And if I asked here today. How many of you. Had situations on your life where. You are the. End of the line. You thought no other move could be made. But God had another move. And you are here today. I will see a. Hopefully a. a bunch of hands up. But I want you to be assured. Uh, that why we live on that great controversy. 
life won't be easy. But God always have another move. Doesn't matter what problems you have in life. God has another move. And when he moves, he moves with mercy. When he moves, he moves uh, mysteriously. In ways that you cannot even see it coming. But he can deliver if you trust your life to him. And when he moves, he moves miraculously. And I challenge you today. I don't know what you're facing through. God wants you to be victorious on this life and in the world to come. God wants you to concentrate on that work of restoration. And next sermon, we're going to see how we can apply those principles and live a victorious life. But while we get there, uh, God wants you to engage with him in this work of restoration. But you cannot do that while you concentrate on the problems. You have to believe that your God is bigger than any problem you may face. Your God can deliver because he always has another move and is never caught by surprise. So, uh, I know that everybody here has a problem. I don't know what's your problem, but just by the mere fact you're human, I know you have a problem. I'm going to kneel right now. Uh, and I'm going to pray for you, for God to take a hold of your life. And I will ask you for a few, min for a few seconds when I make a pause. If you really want to surrender your life to God so you can partner with Him on that work of restoration, trusting that He will take care of your business, trusting that He will restore your life, trusting that He has another move for you that you may not know it because it's too miraculous. Because you don't know it because it's too uh, mysterious. You don't know because it's too uh, merciful for you even to grasp. But you want to surrender anyway because you want to see God being God in your life. So when I pause, please surrender your life and your problems and your will to God. So he gives you not necessarily what you human self wants to give, but what uh, he wants you to give to him. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we are in a war zone. Our world is so different than Eden. Our world is so different from what you meant it to be. Now we see death, diseases, financial problems, broken marriages, broken promises, broken lives. And we can't stand it any longer. Anybody here. Nobody here is immune. To the problems of life. We just have different problems. But as your son. As the spiritual leader of this church family. I ask you dear Lord. Show us that you have another move. We can see the, what your next move is. We can only see a checkmate on our lives. 
but uh, move in our behalf. Show us that the king has another move. And uh, help us to give our lives to our hands, into your hands, so you can take the pieces and miraculously, mercifully, and mysteriously put out together. Bless us in this. And now, dear Lord, I want to surrender my own life. But I also open up a few seconds for those that are here and those that are watching us through the internet to also surrender their own life so you can do your other move and marvel them with something that they never expected. So I give them time to surrender their life to you so you can put their lives together, back together, so they can work for you fully and uh, love you even more. Dear Father in heaven, all those people that are surrendering their lives to you now, please hear their prayers. Our lives, just because of sin, are intrinsically broken. Problems sometimes are too overwhelming to us. So, I ask you, dear Lord, hear their prayers and take their lives. Put the pieces together and make them whole again. Not as they were before, but in the way it was meant to be. Help them to restore in their lives all the beautiful truths we so quickly revealed today. Help them to restore their lives in our senses. Help them to have full health, physical, mental, spiritual, social, relational. Help them to give their lives to you so you can uh, deliver what they cannot do by themselves. Help them not to face defeat by surrendering to you Help them to believe that you always have another move and that you want to bring us to a place of uh, restoration, a place of wholeness, a place of peace. I surrender my life and I surrender all their lives to you. Take us as we are. Raise us up and help us to be uh, made whole again. Help us to Overcome what for us is impossible and help us to serve you wholeheartedly out of love for you because you are an amazing God that always loves us and that always do what you can to get out of the hole we dig out for ourselves. Bless us and keep us and give us your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to the broadcast from the Midland Seventh-day Adventist Church at 2420 East Ashman in Midland, Michigan. If you are in the area, we cordially invite you to visit our church Saturday mornings. If you are a distance away, we encourage you to continue visiting our website and weekly podcast 
at midlandsda.org.